Hey, good morning. Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some over there. We will be in Ephesians chapter 2 today. Uh, we are working our way through a sermon series where we're looking at each of the books of the Bible and trying to get at the core of what is the author of this book saying and what is the point of this book. Uh, not just that you would be people who know the lines of your Bibles, that you would know your Bible in whole, that this is our Bible, that, that we are the church and we are God's people and this is his word to us. Uh, to that end today we will be in the book of Ephesians uh, which is a wonderful and amazing book. I will read the text that we'll be working out of today, and I will pray for us, and we'll go ahead and dig in. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that she, we should walk in them. Please pray with me. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day and this is your word. Uh, this is the mighty truth that we have, have nothing on you that we cannot earn your love in any way, shape, or form, but that you have reached down and you have clutched us out of our own uh, devices of our own making, that you have saved us uh, by grace, through faith, for your glory and for our joy, and that we have no boasting at the foot of the cross and we have no boasting in the resurrection uh, except for the boasting in you and what you've done. Help us, Jesus, for this to just light us up for a passion uh, for you that spreads out into our lives and in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our city uh, and through our church that we would display that we are an overjoyed people who have received nothing but gifts from you. Not that we deserved any of those gifts, but that we've been made new, that we've been saved, uh, and that, that you are moving in our lives for your glory and for our joy. Help us, Jesus, to be carriers of this truth and of this message. That Christianity is not a, not a solution to a problem per se. It's the truth that God saves sinners. Help us, Jesus, to walk in that truth and to share that good news. Jesus, we love you. We pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, at the core of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is the reality that if you are a Christian, you are saved by grace and through faith. Uh, and the, the, the core here, this is the message of Christianity. Salvation through grace, by faith, or by grace and through faith. Uh, and that if you can understand this paragraph we are looking at, you will not only understand, I think, what's at the core of the New Testament. You will not uh, only understand uh, what is the core at, of Pauline's writing, Paul's writings, you will understand what is at the core uh, of the Reformation 
a change in Christianity to remember the reality of the grace and mercy of God. You understand what's at the core of the gospel, and that's the reality that you and I stand before Jesus, not by anything we've done, but by everything he's done, and there's nothing we can do to earn that, and that his love is poured out on us in ways that are lavish and unimaginable. That doesn't just happen when we're looking uh, at the text and just thinking about it, but in our whole life, in all of our life, that all of our life to us is grace from the God of the universe. And that we don't deserve any of it. I think if we understand this, we understand what's at the core of true Christianity. And we'll understand what's at the core and the heart of the gospel. And so my hope is that we'll just look at this paragraph and see how it fits into the book. And understand how the book fits into really our lives. Not just the canon of scripture, but our lives. Uh, So we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead. Not the greatest, uh, most congenial opening line on Paul's part. Not not the greatest, softest, friendliest uh, line. Uh, You are dead. What's your problem? You're dead. At the same time, you have to understand that from Paul, this is out of love. This is reminding him who they once were. Because uh, for if you're not a Christian, you're here with us. Uh, our aim is not to tell you we were sort of good people, but God made us better people. Uh, this is part of our personal improvement plan. Uh, but that we as people were dead. We, we were dead. How dead? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked in which you once walked, who you were. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, This little phrase, the power of the spirit of the air, or or the prince of the power of the air, we've actually since found uh, archaeological in archaeological digs around this area in Ephesus, uh, manuscripts, magic manuscripts for actually like casting Greek, weird Greek magic spells. Uh, and one of the local deities that people used for doing such a thing uh, was this prince of the air. And we found that in the Greek, prince of the air. Uh, we didn't know where that phrase actually came from. We're like, why would Paul say that? And as people unearthed it, I don't know that archaeologists dig like dogs, but when they unearthed it, they found these papyri that say the power of the prince, the prince of the air. And so what Paul is doing here is he is attaching uh, a local deity and magic powers to Satan. That, that's what he's up to here. Uh, he's taking their name, their Greek name for their power things, and he's saying, that is satanic, and if anything's happening there, by the way, it's actually Satan you can uh, give credit to, not the fact that, that that's some magic power. So you were dead in your pa- trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, again, uh, not Mr. Congeniality but a loving truth nonetheless. Uh, here's, here's what this, I think, should be a concern, where this should be a concern for us. Um, if you survey the state of the church, the, the church that loves Jesus in the world, uh, we have spent so much time trying to prove to people that we're not Ned Flanders, uh, and we've done that by proving to them that like, we like rock music and can watch rated R movies. Look, uh, if the moral majority was against like uh, e- explicit language uh, things on your CD or rated R movies, look, we can watch rated R movies. Look, we, we, can, we can be like the world. Look what we can do. We can be just like everybody else. And here's the problem. Perhaps legislating morality was not the answer. 
and the flip side is not being so much like the world that you can't distinguish us from the world. Paul's after people here who are distinguished. He's just assuming it. This is who you were. You were obviously not the people that you were around. He knows Ephesus. This is written probably around 60 AD. He's in prison probably in Rome. He's been to Ephesus. He's seen what's in Ephesus. He's seen the greatness and the grandness of the city. And at the same time, he's saying, that's who you once were. And we should remember this as a people of God, that we should be marked out not by being people who are trying to legislate per se, reality, you know, morality, but people who stand as different, who do different things because we are not the people we once were. We don't walk in the way that we once walked. He's just assuming that. He's just assuming that their life looks different now, but he's reminding of them who they once were. Among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, who are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Uh, you'll notice a qualifier as you read your Bible. The biblical authors are not against passions. They're not against us being people who are excited and, and lit up. Uh, they're, they're not against us being people who are vivacious. They're after us being people who are passionate after the things the world is passionate after. They're after us uh, uh, being in a, in a survival of the fittest mode for money. They're, they're after us in being a battle for appearance uh, or a love of, of all kinds of things. The desires of the body and the mind that were by by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind or like the rest. This is who we were. And I, and I think when we're not careful, we spend so much time trying to convince our non-Christian neighbors that we're cool like them that we don't spend enough time telling them about who Jesus is or, or living a life that's set out and different. We're trying so hard to blend in that we blend in. We live differently. We live differently. We, we spend so much time trying to reconcile uh, what the world thinks we should reconcile. And even kind of doing that middle schooler thing, where we're trying to guess, like, uh, is, is my neighbor going to think that it's weird if I think different things about natural history than they think? How can I most harmonize the Bible with that thing? I remember once I said the word hecka. Hecka, which is not uh, good English, by the way. But it is uh, a word used in Northern California in the rap scene in like 92. Uh, and they said, well, are you saying that because you're a Christian because they were concerned I was going to say hella, which is not actually saying the cuss word in there, uh, by the way. And they just assume, oh, you're a Christian. That's why you're using hecka. You Christians are always sanitizing everything. You're just trying to be like us. No, I'm just saying hecka. And no, I shouldn't say hecka, because hecka isn't good English. But that's not what sets us apart. We want to be set apart people. And, and, and why in the world would we try and get after those things? And try and, we try so hard to harmonize what we are doing uh, that we lose our distinctive character. Paul just assumes that we're going to be distinct here. He just assumes that the church is going to be stink, distinct from the things that they believe. Whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4. But. This is who you were. But what? 
This is who we all were. If you don't know Jesus and you're here with us, uh, this is who we are. We are not people who are going to stand over you and say, you need to be like us. We're actually saying, we are people who are just like you. We sought the, the meaning of life in all the different ways you have sought meaning in life, and we have come up empty because it's empty. That may be the very reason you're even actually here, because everything else comes up empty. Every system you've tried comes up empty. Everything comes up empty but this. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Christianity is not a method of how you clean up your life. Christianity is not a method of how you get your finances in order or your addictions in order or your life in order or your house in order. Christianity is the news that Jesus Christ saves sinners from death to life. Christianity is the news that you can't do anything to earn that love, but that it is grace lavished upon you. That, that you and I have created a gap between ourselves and God that we cannot build a bridge to cross. But God, being rich in mercy, does. God, being rich in mercy, sends his son in the fullness of time. God, in his right and perfect timing, sends his son to save. God made everything good. We broke it. God made everything good. We broke it. And he makes a promise to fix it do this thing, to send his son. It's his idea to fix it, by the way. It was his idea to make it good. It was our idea to break it, and it was his idea to fix it. To send his son in the fullness of time, to live the perfect sinless life that we cannot live, to die the death on the cross that we ultimately deserve from being the people that we once were, dead in our trespasses and sins. That is our spiritual state. He dies on the cross so that we who are dead can live. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. How much do we have to brag on ourselves for this? Zero. Christianity is not the best, most logical system. It is not the, the you take the pantheon of world religions and spread them out, you throw a dartboard, you say, I'll be a Christian. Uh, when I was beginning to explore Christianity, I was caught up in every kind of New Agey uh, uh, and Eastern religion you can think of. And I began to think, well, maybe because I'm, I'm the place and time in the universe in which I live, well, you know, maybe I'll be a Christian. Uh, I'm an Anglo-Saxon living in North America. Maybe that should be my spiritual system. And I was thinking in terms of colonialism, so that I'm not colonizing other people's uh, world religious views. Now, God is gracious in his sovereign mercy to use that line of thinking, by the way. But I began to explore Christianity. And I began to explore, you know, like Gospel of Thomas stuff, and honestly, it wasn't that interesting. And then I read the actual Bible, and God saved me from my sin and made me alive together with God. That is the most truncated version of my testimony I think I could do. And saved me together and made me alive together with God. But God being rich in mercy, because the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, you cannot get your life right so that you can come and be a part of the church or put your life together so that you can come and have a life with Jesus, but that we come in total and utter chaos to Christ. More than chaos, right? It's not just disorder, it's death. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But... God being rich in mercy because the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved. Now look at that sentence, if you would. In our English, we have a couple brackets there. Because Paul is so excited to get to the point of this paragraph that he just has to spoil it by throwing in there in the beginning. That's not where it goes, Paul. It goes to the end. It comes to the crescendo and we say, yay! But he's so excited to say, by the way, by grace you are saved. You are dead and you are alive. And guess what? Dead people don't make themselves alive. Simple medical fact. When you're dead, you're dead. But God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. And raised us up with him. You're alive. And seated us with him in heavenly places. Seated us with him? I don't know about you. I know there's a lot of books on heaven tourism coming out these days. I personally have not had that experience. What is Paul talking about? You're in. You're as good as in. We'll talk about this a little more in a second. You, if you're a Christian, cannot shipwreck your life from the things that God has planned for you. Not the height, nor depth, nor powers, nor principalities can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You cannot outsin the cross. This is God's grace and mercy to you. God is the Redeemer. God is the Savior. Jesus is the one who keeps us and holds us and will not let us go. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So if I put my finger right there at the end of that sentence, and I come back to the beginning of the paragraph, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the, son, at work in the sons of disobedience. That's who I was. And despite the fact that that's who I was, this is what he chooses to do to me, for me. When God talks about immeasurable riches, what does that even mean? immeasurable riches. We live in Seattle. We have billionaires who build their offices under the lake. We think of that as immeasurable riches. But in God's economy, that's nothing. Popper. Bill Gates has nothing. He might have a library under the water that you can see when you go by with your speedboat. Hey, you've got a speedboat. You're pretty rich, too, in the world's economy, but in God's economy, all these things are nothing. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You and I would not be sitting here. I think God would have worked it out, of course, but then we're in kind of a back to the future sort of paradigm scenario. But in God's sovereign movement, 
a monk hiding somewhere off in Germany, starts translating the Bible out of Greek and instead of Latin. And a little no-name nothing named Martin Luther in 1517 ends up posting, I think that's probably what it would have sounded like if your hammer's made out of wood and the door's made out of wood, posting the 95 Thesis to have a debate. Someone takes the 95 Thesis, prints it, and starts distributing it. But at the core of this whole thing, he got to the core of what was a works theology. Works theology is where you're earning your way to God. Now, we love, as Christians, to build our own works theology, and we need to be very careful of that. If I just do this, then God will love me. If I just read my Bible, he will love me. If I just do this thing with the poor, he will love me. If I do this thing, if I'm kind to people, he will love me. No, you're already loved, so that's why we read our Bibles, and that's why we serve the poor, and that's why we do what we do. And Martin Luther gets to the bottom of this and says, hey, you guys see, this is not, I don't speak German, so I don't know exactly what he says, but he gets down there and he says, did you guys see this? For by grace. And this word in Greek seems to mean a gift, like nothing you can do to earn anything whatsoever at all. By grace you've been saved. The thing that makes you right with God and deals with your sin. By grace you have been saved through faith. So I don't get grace or salvation through anything I do, but I believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This truth is so basic to us and yet needs to be unearthed again and again. And I think as we continue down the road of American sort of Christianity stuff. We need to continue to unearth this reality and get our consumerism off it and get off our preferences and just come back to the truth of the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is the core of what we believe. We take all of everything off and the reality that you know Jesus is a total and complete object gift to you. For by grace you are saved through faith. And Martin Luther looks at him and says, that is not what we are saying at all. Let's come back to this thing, because this is pretty good. And then he begins to read the rest of the New Testament in Greek and says, hey, look at that. Gift, 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 gift. God, 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 God. The gospel is that Jesus saves, not you. Qualifies it, verse 9. Not a result of works. Now, when you live in a time and a place where you're told that even your works can spring your family members from purgatory, which turns out doesn't actually even exist, <laughs> and you read that and you say, well, if my works can't save them, I guess my works probably can't save me either. Your life in Christ is a gift. I mean, sometimes we come to these passages, Ephesians 8 and 9, and it's almost so simple and straightforward that there's no exegesis to be done. Because grace means what it means, right? It's gratuitous. You did not earn it. It's over the top. Saved. From what? From all the stuff we looked at in verses 1. Saved by grace. Through faith. And you believe. Right? Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, or this word could also be translated, and, and maybe this might speak to you as a Seattle, I know it does to me, as poetry. The thing he has crafted. You know, a piece of art that God has crafted. God, uh, God doesn't do outsider art, but you know, when you look at something you might take to craft art out of, I don't know that Children of Wrath is the first place that I go. That's why Paul can say Children of Wrath, because he knows there's really good stuff's coming. 
not as a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so we can't boast in those either, that we should walk in them. So we need to see this paragraph uh, as a, a diamond that sort of sits in the setting of the rest of the book uh, of Ephesians. Um, if you have ever hiked in Washington, uh, there are two kinds of, of uh, places trails go. They go to places where you either go up the mountain and come back down the mountain, or there are times when you go up the mountain and you get to the top and you've got to make sure you go down the right trailhead, or else you'll find yourself at a different parking lot. Uh, it's exciting, it's interesting, because then you're on the other side of the mountain, however your car is in the parking lot on the other side of the mountain. And then you have to call Jake's mom, and she comes pick you up and drives you back, because you're 16 and you didn't pay attention to the trailhead. Good job, Jake and Andrew. True story, life illustration. Uh, but we have these two things that sort of lead up to this diamond. And as you read these, what are called the prison letters, these Pauline, Pauline's a really fancy word to say, Paul, Paul's letters, uh, you read these, these prison letters like Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, they go up to the diamond and they come back down. Colossians is two parts, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll be there soon. So going up the one side of the trail, and he realizes that he paperclipped his notes to the wrong section because he can't see it. Oh, there it is. Unearthed, just like Martin Luther. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says this. And, and just... Look at it in your Bible. But listen to it and listen to how much stuff we do and how much stuff Jesus does. That's what I want you to hear. Listen for what we do here and what Jesus does here. Uh, starting verse 3. I'm going to read 3 through 10. Well, I'll read the whole thing because it's really one sentence in Greek. But here we go. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose, he chose us, not we chose him, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. What makes us holy and blameless? His choosing of us. When did he choose us? Before the foundations of the world. That's how little you have to do with that. Who blessed us in Christ Jesus in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. He foreordained us. He chose us. He reckoned us before for adoption. Adoption is not a mutual experience. When you adopt a kid, you adopt a kid. And then they're your kid. That's how it goes. You chose them, especially in the context of first century Rome. You choose the one you're adopting. Adopted his son through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Oh, now we have a purpose. His glory, by the way. Back to him. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. So even the fact that we get to spend our life in the praise and adoration and the glory of God is a gift to us. Because you've ever had a moment where you actually see God for who he is and worship him and know him? That's a gift. That's a gift. In him, 
We have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses. His blood, our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So we go up this God movement glorying thing. We live to the praise of his glorious grace. And it's just, la- I mean, that word lavished, it's lavished upon us. His love, his mercy, his kindness, his grace, it's just poured out on us. It's poured out on you when you're asleep and you don't even know he's pouring out his grace and mercy on you. For, for moments, we can grasp it and we can think about it for just a second and realize as we're sitting here that God is just pouring his love out on us. He's keeping us and caring for us and moving in our life and changing our life and empowering us by the Holy Spirit. He's doing these things. And then you and I are going to sing some songs and we'll worship him and we'll take communion and it'll be awesome and we'll do these things. And maybe you'll keep it as you're getting your cup of coffee and you're saying hi to friends and you have this fellowship and this glory and you get in your car. And at some point in time, Seinfeld's on or something. And what I'm not saying is that we, we just go with that. I'm not saying that we can't live a life glorying Jesus with every second of our life. But as human beings, we, we have a, an attention span. It's like when you try and think about the Trinity. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're smarter than I am, right? Uh, but when I think about the Trinity, it's hard to focus on three and one at the same exact time because I'm a finite, limited being. So when I think about Trinity and three... Trinity in three, and then I like focus down to think about how God's one. I can think about how God is one. God alone is one. I can think about that. But then I think about his operation uh, in the community of the Trinity, and it becomes hard for my little human pea brain to do it at the exact same time. And I'm not saying I can't switch like that, right? I just switched. Boom, 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 boom. But it's really, really, really hard to think about it together and hold it together. And then to like move on in the verse while I'm still holding this idea together. It is hard to hold on to the reality of God's lavishing His grace on us, which then points our hearts back up on Him. It is a good thing to recall. These are good realities to check back in on daily, moment by moment even. That every moment of your day is God lavishing grace upon you. But because you are finite, someone is going to cut your car off. And it's hard in that moment to, to hold this Ephesians 1 truth. That even as your car gets cut off and they're running and you're trying not to flash the universal sign of disapproval or whatever you might be up to, it's hard to hold the reality that God is just pouring out his mercy on you all the time. Which means all the time, or really all the time, You're a passive recipient of his lavish grace upon your life. And that he is lavishing grace upon you even when you're not awake to the reality that he is. Crazy. Totally crazy. Wonderful, glorious God. And all these things are built and revealed to us to turn our hearts back up onto worship of him. He is a good and great God. So God's movement, God's sovereign hand is the mountain up to Ephesians chapter 2, right? Because we're thinking about the whole book here. This is who he is. And it really comes to, I mean, these ideas, these Ephesians 1 ideas come to fruition here when we come to this truth that it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And then he starts going down the hill. 
It's not, he's not going downhill. He's taking us down the trail. Okay. What do we do with that? How, therefore, then shall we live? So, if I understand this correctly, not only can I not do anything to earn God's love, not only can I do anything to keep His love, but that my good works that are pleasing to Him have been foreordained by Him and are empowered by His grace and mercy and is part of His will for my life to live a life, to proclaim His holy name, to love people in His name, to worship Him in His name. What do I do with the rest of my life if this lavish grace is so mighty? Well, I'll tell you what it isn't. We don't stand petrified and say, well, what do I do with the rest of my life? Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 1, therefore, conveniently there's therefore located there. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love, now here's our, our key here, as Christ loved us. He'll say in, in Ephesians things like, forgive others as you have been forgiven. Our whole life is then lived in a response to who he is and that's worship. If the motivation in your life for loving others is the fact that God has loved you in the person of Jesus Christ, the love you have for other people is gratuitous for starters, and it's worship. Why do I say it's gratuitous? Well, I mean, karma is the, well, you don't say national, right? Karma is our civic religion. I do good things so good things will happen to me, and God will do bad things to bad people that do bad things. Uh, except for me, because my good things are always better than my bad things, because that's how I think about myself. Uh, but, you know, if I happen to, like, uh, go through the bag at the store and find out that they didn't ring up three of my shirts or whatever, that must be my good karma. Or you can go back and tell them that they didn't ring up your three shirts and you stole your three shirts. Right? Just saying. We can attribute anything to if it's happening good to me, it must be because I'm an awesome person. If my life is awesome, my car started this morning, I am awesome. I get so much credit for being such a nice person. That love is about you. In fact, I'm going to be kind to people so that I get my good karma back. I get my good karma points. I'm at the coffee shop. The sign says good karma, and I put my dollar in because it's still 1995, and the tip jar still says good karma, right? Maybe that's just me. You put the money in the jar, and good things will come your way. Who are you tipping? The barista? Well, they got the dollar, but you get the karma. Who gets the dollar? You get the dollar. You paid for it, right? Good karma, civic religion, it comes back to get you. It comes back to get you. It comes back for you. But see how this is gratuitous? Because all of a sudden, if I'm actually giving the kid a coat because there's a coat drive and there's a kid without a coat, and I understand that God has given me everything in his son, Jesus Christ, then all of a sudden I'm free to just give. I don't get anything back. It's an expression of the love he's poured out on me. And this is really the sum total of the rest of Ephesians. But, but we can look at it in this verse. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. 
Because Christ has laid down his life for you, you can lay down your life for Jesus. You can lay down your life for the lost as he laid down his life for the lost. You can lay down your life for the church as he laid down his life for the church. But it's in response, and that's worship. Back to chapter 2. So verse 10, verse 8, pardon me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. This is at the core of what Christianity is. This is at the core of what the gospel is. And this paragraph has a number of implications that Paul is going to point to. Salvation by grace through faith is for sinners. Salvation by grace through faith is for sinners with adjectives. Where do I get that? And you are dead. I guess that's a, it's technically a verb. Were dead. So adjectives, nouns, equative verbs. It's for sinners. And by this I mean it's for all kinds of sinners. Because this includes all kinds of sinners. And you were dead in your trespasses sins in which you once walked following the course of the world. Sin isn't just isolated to wiling out. Sin isn't just open rebellion. Sin is putting the dollar in the coffee jar so that you get stuff back. It's good works for the wrong reasons. Sin isn't just good works for the wrong reasons. And, and sin isn't just wiling out. Sin is choosing not to do the right things. And there's right things all around us every day. Uh, sin isn't just those three things. There's also idolatry. Idolatry is where you remove God from his right place, which technically is wiling out and rebellion. But we'll be clear. Idolatry is where you make something other than Jesus the main point of your life. When you put something else in the center of your life, what you're doing is you're saying, Jesus, I know that throne belongs to you, but you get to go and Xbox gets to stay. You get to go and immorality gets to stay. You get to go and money gets to stay. You get to go and my bass fishing boat gets to stay. You get to go and Chick-fil-A gets to go right there in your spot at the center of the universe and the meaning and purpose of my life. And that is what I will be identified by. This is what it is to be a child of wrath. This is what it is to walk in disobedience. This is what it is to follow the prince of the power of the air. Okay? Salvation by grace through faith is for sinners and all kinds of sins. This is for everyone who would turn and call upon the name of the Lord. Salvation by faith through grace is for children of wrath. It's for people who have been insurrectionists against the Lord. It, it's for people who've tried to push Jesus out of the place and put Chick-fil-A right in the middle, right? It's for people who have pushed him out of the way and put whatever else you can name in that spot. You've started a war with God. God doesn't lose wars, right? You've picked a fight with the wrong person. He is much bigger than you. He is not the guy in the room you pick a fight with because he's not a guy in a room. He's aseity, temporal, and spatial, omnipotent, omnipresent. Not the guy to pick a fight with. Not the guy to do insurrection on. And what we deserve for our insurrection against God is wrath, which is just a biblical way to talk about the business end of God's justice. We deserve the consequence for our injustice against a perfectly loving, just God. Salvation by faith, through gra by grace, through faith, is a gift 
for people who don't deserve it and honestly people who deserve much, much worse. It's the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ who drinks the cup so we don't have to. He took the wrath that I deserve so I don't have to. And this is available to absolutely all who would call upon the name of the Lord. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not because of anything we deserve. Mark chapter 2, verse 17 says this. Starting at 15, Mark 2, 15. And he reclined at table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So the question is, are the many who followed him his disciples or the many who followed him sinners and tax collectors? And the scribes of the Pharisees, the Bible, the Bible uh, writers, uh, not writers, copyists, uh, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, interesting they don't talk to him. They have a side conversation with Thomas. Can you hear me when I say that, when I whisper? I can't tell. Because I'm whispering and I can't hear myself. They're whispering. Hey, why is Jesus eating with those guys? Why would he hang out with that guy? Why would he hang out with any of us? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, uh-oh. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call righteous, but sinners. Now here's the problem with the Pharisees. If you are a sick person and you are in desperate need of medical attention, and you don't actually believe you're a sick person in desperate need of medical attention, you will not go to a doctor, which will have grave ramifications. They're sick, they just don't know it. Or else they talk to Jesus about it straight up because they, they would have. The thing about the tax collectors and the sinners, when, when they use the word sinners in the Gospels in particular, they mean people who are wiling out sinners, like sinner sinners. Right, not cleaned up sinners, sinner sinners. Sinner sinners are hanging out with Jesus. The reality is that they can get saved and they can change, and in that society, in that world, they would continue to be seen as sinners. So we don't even know their, we don't even know the state of these people who are these sinners. We just know that everybody knows that they've been wiling out. But here's what I know about them. They know they need a doctor. They know they need the physician, and the physician came to save them. Salvation by grace through faith. It's for people who need a doctor, for children of wrath, who need someone, which is all of us. Salvation by grace through faith is the unilateral movement of God. Why use the word unilateral? Well, because the word monergistic's too old timey. It is the direct intercession of God on our behalf. Well, how do I know that? Well, dead people don't make moves. That's why. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 1 says this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So what did he do to earn his place with God? What did Abe do? Well, he did a lot. He was a grown man who was circumcised. 
He was uh, a pagan who followed the voice of God. He, he did some things, right? But what did that do to save him? Well, the answer is nothing. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. If at any point in the course of salvation I had a hand in it, I can at least say I did that part. I did that, right? The guy said the thing. He said, what do I have to do to get you and Jesus tonight? And we struck a deal, right? Like a used car salesman. Nothing. He came and got me, kicking and screaming. A rebel against the God of the universe who is saved by grace. It's the unilateral movement of God to save. Salvation by grace shows us God's mercy. This is important. God being rich in mercy. Here's, here's what mercy is. So grace is a gift, right? It's a doron. It's a gift, something given to you. Mercy is something you deserve withheld. Because not only does God show us grace by giving us Jesus and by saving us, he also gives the wrath that we deserve as children wrath to Jesus instead of us. Amazing. Salvation by grace. Salvation by grace through faith shows us the love of God. I want 316 back from the football. I don't know if anybody even knows what that thing means anymore. I want it back from football. Or at least I want football to redeem it. I want the end zone verse back. God so loved the world. John always, 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 always uses the word world the same way. Cosmos, he uses to describe uh, 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 the organized rebellion of humanity against God. So when God so loved the world, he loved sinners who were in rebellion against him. He loved sinners who didn't love him. This is why in 1 John, John says God loved us first before we loved him. It's the love of God that changes our hearts to love him. Salvation by grace shows us the love of God. For, um, excuse me, because of the great love which he loved us, Paul runs out of words, because of the great love which he loved us. It was a great love which he loved us with. Whenever he uses the verb and the noun, it's a big deal. It's a great love, and he used that love to love us, because God, uh, God is love. doesn't belong on the bumper sticker of your Volkswagen van. Well, it might, if you mean it in the right way. God is love. It means that God is the par excellence example of love. If you want to know what love is, you look at how God loved. Not that he's sort of like the energy of love. That God is love when I'm loving someone else. The love between us is God. That's not what it means. And you can see that clearly from the rest of the letter. We'll get there in a few weeks too. Salvation by grace through faith is eschatological. That's a big word. There's an end time reality to it. And by this I mean that salvation by grace to you isn't just something that happened at a point in time in the past, but something that's coming to fruition in the future. Salvation by grace through faith means, as you'll see right here, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards Christ Jesus. That's coming. I have been shown so much grace and mercy by the Lord Jesus Christ. If this is just a foretaste of the immeasurable riches that are coming in the love and kindness of Christ Jesus, I don't even know how to put that in words. What this verse means 
if we're sharing in this thing that the king has, you have a ticket at the king's table and no one can take it away. You will be at that party and you have a ticket at the table with the king. And that's a now and not yet reality. You're raised. You're dead and you're alive. You're, you're an eschatological, if you're a Christian, an eschatological person. Well, what does that even mean? That means that right now you're actually living in the reality and the foretaste of the kingdom of God that's coming because you live under the rule and reign of the king. And it's a foretaste. Foretaste divine, right? That's why we sing that song. Salvation by grace, and this is probably quite obvious, salvation by grace is through faith. Well, how do I get in on it then? Uh, Romans Everything falls apart because of the paperclip. Uh, Romans 10 says this. The word is near you, in your mouth. This is Romans 10, starting in verse 8. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. It's the good news of Jesus. That's the word of faith. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is our response to the reality of lavish grace poured out on us. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who would call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they never heard? And how, will they, uh, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Uh, but, they ha- uh, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord who has, uh, who has believed the Lord. Uh, Pardon me. Lord who has believed what they have heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus. We hear it. We believe it. We respond to it. We respond to the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's by faith, not by works, but by faith, but by believing in him and his works. Salvation by faith through grace is a gift. You don't earn gifts. It might be your birthday, but you didn't really earn your birthday. It's a gift. You can't earn it. Salvation by grace is evidenced by the Christian life. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. This is the Christian life. And and this salvation by grace through faith demands a response. It's It's a... response that's now. If you've never heard this truth of who he is, believe, repent, know him, love him, receive his lavish love, receive his grace, receive his forgiveness, receive his salvation. And it's now. Is this the the hallmark of your Christian life? That you are a person that understands the lavish grace which Jesus has lavished upon you and you are walking empowered by his spirit and the good works he's prepared for you. Now, this can look a couple of ways. This can mean that your life doesn't reflect Jesus at all. You believe, but there's nothing indicatively Christian about your life. What needs to change that your life would be indicatively Christian? 
to be clearly Christian. And, and maybe you have a life that is indicatively Christian. You know, you got your QT, your quiet time, which is a really beautiful, wonderful thing to have and to do. You're here, right, with the people of God. But are you doing this in the freedom that he's afforded you? Are we putting money in the tip jar for karma or in a response? And here's the trickiest part with that. I'm not the heart police. We're not going to be the heart police. It's not how church runs. My job's not to walk around assessing your motives. But Jesus, Jesus will tell you. And you know before I'm saying it, you know, because you're doing spiritual push-ups and doing works righteousness. I would really encourage you, if your Christian walk is lived in that, look to Christ. Don't stop reading the Bible and meeting with God's people, but be free and know that God speaks through his word and you can pray to him because he has saved you and he loves you. Be free in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't stop doing the stuff that's indicatively Christian. Do it in the freedom he's already purchased for you. Because we do this forever. Salvation is not some point in time. It's a saved life lived by grace from now until forever. You get to love Jesus from now forever because he's lavished grace on us now and forever. And the grand payoff is that we get to live with Jesus now and forever. And so we live as a foretaste of what's coming. That's how you're free to pray and read your Bible and do stuff with the people of God. Because this is what we're going to do. Forever. And it just gets better and better and better and better. Let's pray. King Jesus, this is your day and we are your people. This is your word. This is your truth. We're saved by grace through faith and we believe. We confess, Lord, we believe. You came, you lived, you died. You rose. We believe. We believe that you did those things to save us. To glorify yourself and to save us from our sins. To lavish your grace and mercy on us so that we can live for the praise of your glorious name. We believe that you've set us free. Help us to live in the freedom of your gospel. Help us to embrace our, our life in you more and more and more and more, and help us to live for your glory every second of every day. To remember that every second of every day is lavish grace upon us. Help us to be just mindful and cognizant of who you are, Jesus, what you have done, and what you are ultimately doing, and your power and your mercy. And Jesus, we love you so much, and we pray these things for your glory and for our joy, and in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. Um, in a moment, we're going to, to take communion together. Logistically, what we have here is we have gluten-free bread on the far side, uh, regular bread in the middle, wine and juice according to your conscience, and a, a basket for the offering of the ministry. Um, when we do this, we pronounce Jesus' body broken and bloodshed for our sins. We do this as a forgiven, blood-bought, freed people. We do this because Jesus has saved us by grace through faith, and it's not our own doing. We do this to remember the thing that actually happened to save us, the cross. 
And so we do as Paul has commanded us in 1 Corinthians. We consider our sin before we take this, but we repent. We turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus and we come and we take this as a celebration. This is for Christian people. If you heard the good news of Jesus today and you became a Christian, we would invite you into the celebration with us that we proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection together in song and his cross through the taking of communion. Um, so when you're ready, we come up and we take this and we remember what he's done and we get up and we sing and we celebrate and we respond to the lavish grace he's poured upon us by worshiping and praising his holy name uh, as we come together and as we go out from here into our lives. So when you're ready, please take communion. Please stand up and sing.